Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Mala Subramaniam, executive coach and the author of Beyond Wins. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am delighted to welcome Mala Subramaniam uh, as our guest for this episode. She's a corporate speaker, executive coach, and uh, trainer. And get this, she spent 20 years in uh, marketing and strategy roles at global companies like IBM, GE, Dun & Bradstreet. And um, uh, I'm, I'm so happy to have her on. Uh, we share some clients. Uh, when I've seen her long, impressive client list, I say, hey, I know some folks there. Uh, so uh, Mala, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. I'm delighted to be in this podcast. I'm so glad to have you. And, I, and I'm especially interested in um, your blend of Eastern and Western philosophies when it comes to business interactions. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, um, in your book. And uh, so I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to talk about all that stuff. That'd be great. But first, <laughs> uh, but first, tell us, um, uh, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are? You know, I, I see myself as a catalyst for change wherever I go. I cause change. Some is uncomfortable, some comfortable. I myself, you know, have experienced change. I was raised in India and I came here and uh, I went through an MBA program and uh, I lived in the East Coast, uh, in fact, in New Jersey. And I'm now in San Diego. Uh, so it's like coming to another planet altogether. After my MBA, I was in banking, where that's where I met my good friend, Joan, who taught me a lot of things, basic things. When I came from India, I was pretty naive. You know, I didn't know anything about the United States. So I was making a lot of mistakes. For instance, you know, when people ask me, where did you go to high school? And I would say I went to a convent. And what I meant was a Catholic school. And, you know, people say, convent. <laughs> they say, wait, are you a nun? <laughs> That's what, you know, I, I, I kind of feel uh, that they knew that I wasn't a, a nun, but that I was making a mistake and people would laugh. But Joan uh, basically uh, explained to me the difference between saying convent and a Catholic school. Uh, sorry, when you say Joan... You're talking about Joan Capua, who, uh, for listeners, uh, was a guest on an earlier episode of The Indispensables. Yeah, she was a colleague of mine. And uh, five years in banking, you know, where the banking, uh, I, was, I did market research and marketing. And uh, that is the field that I went into because the bank felt that I didn't have the look for a lending officer. You know, they were looking for a typical uh, person and I didn't fit that category. Wait a minute, a typical person? What do you mean? I, I, in fact, uh, the uh, person in HR at that time told me I don't have the Nordic look. And they were looking for, I think, a white male, you know, a pin, pinstripe suit. 
And although I did very well in the credit training program, they didn't think that I qualified for being a lending officer. But it turned out good because everything that happens in life, you know, something good comes out of it. I landed in market research, which is actually in in my heart and soul. That is what I love doing uh, research and developing strategies, making changes to the company. And after I left that, I moved into Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Uh, I was the first marketing person there. And I introduced a lot of concepts there. And very quickly, in 10 years when I left Blue Cross, I was the director of strategic planning and competitive intelligence and change management. I helped Blue Cross transition from a traditional to a managed care. And I also helped them with customer service. They had multiple customer service lines and there's a lot of confusion. People just hated calling Blue Cross. I helped them streamline it into one customer service line, 1-800 line. And so that was uh, the accomplishment there. When I left Blue Cross, I had been certified as a strategic uh, planning and change management. So I taught for a year, freelanced, went into uh, a visiting nurse, which was my best job, because there the goal, and that's what I love, the mission of the visiting nurse was to help people. And these nurses, whether they were paid or not, they would spend the time with the patient when they went home. So this was a home care. And I loved that. Although I didn't get that much money there, I still loved. uh, And some of my best friends are from the visiting nurse. And from there, I moved to Dun & Bradstreet, where I was an AVP of competitive intelligence. And there I helped Dun & Bradstreet, which was struggling and the stock a price had gone down quite significantly, some of my research helped them realize that they need to automate their credit uh, information. They cannot have those reams and reams of paper. If you remember a long time ago, that's what it was, stack of paper. And I, uh, I helped them. Uh, and with my help and the research that I provided, they actually bought Hoover's. And that really set them on a path to success. And my uh, boss uh, there uh, liked me and she moved to IBM. She dragged me there and I was in IBM and I was, uh, you know, in charge of uh, research again, uh, market insights. I call it market insights. I don't like the term market research because it is more about numbers and data, whereas what I provided was the essence of what it means for marketing and decision making. Five years at the end of the IBM, what happened was when they laid me off, usually people got uncomfortable and laid me off because I was asking for too many changes. (laughs) So when they laid me off and I walked out of uh, IBM and I was sitting in the parking lot. So I'm going to tell you how this book came into being. I was sitting in the parking lot and I was wondering, you know, what is going on? Why did I get laid off? What did I do wrong? And when I look back, I felt like I had left my roots behind. I had left a lot of the value systems. I was so focused on winning and getting my way in the company, you know, making change without realizing how many people it hurt the vendors, the colleagues, peers, you know, I was on a winning streak. It was all about winning. And there was a beginning and an end. I won. 
And people said, oh, Mala, that's great. You did all this. But what did I leave behind? A lot of my friends and colleagues uh, and peers. Let me stop you there for a minute. Because um, I, I, I don't want to leave behind um, some of the earlier parts of your story. Because it sounds like you said that you left behind some of your values and some of your instincts. Uh, but it sounds like in your first career role that you were describing, uh, you were subjected to bias and that you were told not to be yourself and that you were told that who you were didn't fit some image of, you know, I guess, you know, some white guy in a suit, banker, lending office officers. And I, and I wanted to I wanted to draw a bright line under that because that had to be when in the 80s. Uh, yeah. And of course, now, uh, not that people are not subjected to bias today, of course they are. Uh, but it sounds like that was so explicit what you were subjected to. It was, it was more open. It was not uh, hidden or latent. It was uh, very direct. And, and I felt that throughout uh, uh, the, uh, the five years that I was in banking, but what provided me the shield was the was getting into a field where I was the expert. So nobody challenged me or nobody looked at me. They looked at my expertise. Okay. So, so, so after that early experience, right, you really sharpened your expertise, you sharpened your credentials. Um, you know, you became a chief strategy officer and it sounds like first though, you, you, you uh, sharpened your own career strategy. Um, you got some good advice from good friends uh, who were savvy in different ways than you, maybe I had different experiences than you, uh, uh, like Joan Capua from our earlier episode. Um, and, and you were able to make your way at Dun & Bradstreet, at, at Blue Cross, uh, Blue Shield, at IBM. Um, but now you find yourself sitting in a parking lot thinking, hmm, wait a minute. Here I was on a winning streak. But it sounds like you're saying almost like you were winning too much or you were winning the wrong way or you were winning at, uh, at, at the expense of uh, your relationships. Exactly. Because I think what I felt was I lost my balance. See, because you, you work on getting long-term results. At the same time, you want to maintain your relationship because your relationships are the ones who are going to yield the long-term results. It's not the short wins because the wins are not going to help you. Win to me, uh, the difference and the I draw the difference between winning and succeeding. Success is a journey. It's a long-term. There is no end. Whereas a win is like a race. You know, you start and you end, and you got the uh, whatever it is that you wanted to achieve, and you are not concerned about who is behind in your race. You are only trying to reach the goal. And it's not that I was vicious or, uh, you know, or uh, mean or mean-spirited. It was more, I was so focused on achieving the goal that I forgot what was important. And so here you are, you're sitting in the parking lot. Now put us, put us in the parking lot there. Where were you? I was in uh, Westchester. Westchester, New York, in the in the parking lot at the IBM uh, facility there. They escorted me out and wished me well. And, and I was thinking, okay, where do I go from here? 
because I've been in all the big companies. Now, IBM is the ultimate, and it was a good uh, experience for me. I learned a lot in IBM, and I loved working there. And I'm here sitting outside. Where do I go from here? What do I do? And that's when I realized, hey, Mala, you've forgotten your roots. You know, you're here and there are not too many friends left for you to call and see what you want to do and where you want to go. So what did I do wrong here? And that brought me to the realization that every day in the company, I was negotiating. You know, it was actually a negotiation to get projects done. And I outwitted everybody. And that's not crazy, right? That, 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 that people in workplaces, I think that resonates with people. That certainly resonates with me and with the people with whom I speak. That I think so many people in workplaces of all shapes and sizes, organizations uh, uh, in all different industries, uh, wherever they are in the chain of command, I think a lot of people find themselves, you know, sort of stuck in the middle with people up, down, sideways and diagonal trying to negotiate their way through the day, through the week, through the month, trying to meet their goals. Um, and, and so uh, in some ways, what you were doing was probably being immensely successful. But what did your boss or the what did they tell you at IBM that, you know, you're winning too much? No, they, they were all happy because they were benefiting. Because I was not in, in, in my win, I wasn't focused on getting titles or promotions or compensation. I was so in the race, the rat race to win that I wasn't, so I didn't make anybody uncomfortable by asking for a promotion or asking for higher compensation, anything. So they were, they cheered me on. They said, oh, great. So, so, so what went wrong? Why did, why did, why did they ask you to leave? Uh, I think uh, it's because uh, there were some structural changes. There were new, uh, new people who came in. So then why were you in the parking lot wondering what you had done wrong? It sounds like maybe you had not done anything wrong. No, it, it was not only about being laid off. It was about my whole career. I said, okay, I have been through 15 years or whatever, 20 years and I've done very well. Now, where do I go? And why do I feel like I haven't really achieved anything? You were at a crossroads. Exactly. Crossroads. That's Tell us about this insight that you had that led to this book, because the book is really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's when I realized that it's not about winning. You know, winning is short term. What I should have focused on is succeeding. And what is the difference between win and success? To me, success means a long journey. And it's not about the external. It's not about other people. It's, I cannot blame or hold other people responsible. It's all about me. I became more contemplative. I was thinking about what is it that I can do now and I saw the people around, it was around 5 p.m. And, and I saw the people walking out. And Bruce, I actually wanted to go to everybody and say, hey, think before, <laughs> you know, th this, is, this is kind of a don't fall into this race. And if you think long-term and if you think about success, 
you're going to be better off and the company is going to be better off because the company then, you know, if you are thinking short term, then in the larger scale, the company is also looking at short term profits. It's not thinking about long term uh, things. So I realized that I need to, you know, start teaching this to everybody. I need to spread this word. And, and my Indian roots, India is all about relationship. And whereas the United States is all about transactions, it's very transactional. India will not even engage in a negotiation if they don't know you. So they have to build that relationship. So I said, okay, now I need to teach this difference. And so I have to go beyond winning and succeed. And I, and I called it. So then I said, what do I call this? Every day that I was in corporate America, I was actually negotiating to get the work done, but I was negotiating very aggressively and offensively and got my work done. And I said, okay, now I have to teach people how to do it in a way that you build the relationship and you focus on long-term results. It sounds like what you're saying is, um, that what you started to realize was that relationships and real success uh, uh, are, are more of a long game. And that if you make the mistake of focusing on short-term wins, uh, you start uh, trying to, to bully people or negotiate, you say, or, you know, quid pro quo, or, you know, uh, what do I need to do to get you to do this? Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's what I call false influence thinking, like, like influence peddling, like, you know, if you don't do this for me, I won't do that for you. Or if you want me to do something for you, you better do this for me. Uh, and that puts you and everyone else in, in a tough place. And you might get what you need in the short term, but 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 it undermines how people think and feel about you. It undermines your reputation. It undermines your longer term success. Is that what you're trying to say? Absolutely. That is exactly. And and people were afraid to work with me. If if I was on a project, people were oh God, Mala is on the project. You know, she'll get the thing done, but she is not going to make it easy for anybody. So that's that's what uh, made me wake up. You know. Is that the way I am? I'm not like that. You know, when I came from India, I was not. So what made me into this monster? And how do I teach other people not to turn into this monster? And when you say this monster, you mean somebody, you mean somebody who's coming in every day and trying to peddle influence and get things done, whether you have the authority or not, but you're trying to peddle influence and get your way with people so many people conduct themselves this way and they think it's their only option. Okay, so tell us, you call it the big question. What's the big question? The big question is, do you want to win or do you want to succeed? And I'll, I'll tell you the story of this uh, person who was so good in accomplishing projects and everybody about, see, the problem is people about don't see how aggressive and how uncomfortable the other people are. They're only looking at what you have achieved. They're looking at results. They are not looking at how you got the results because that's not what their interest is. They want results. So how you achieve it is your game. And, and they don't kind of sometimes, uh, senior people forget that there are other people involved and the other people could get hurt. 
So this person really uh, was so good. People were promoting her, recognizing her, and her boss was all, hey, this is great. And then a new boss came in and there was a new project and she was nominated to lead the project. And when she called people for a meeting, nobody showed up. Uh, and, and so she wrote a note to them saying, hey, what happened? Uh, you know, this is an important project. Nobody showed up. They said, we have other priorities. These are all other departments. They are not reporting to her. They're all departments. The only people who showed up were her staff. And the staff, when she asked the staff, the staff very, 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 you know, hesitantly said they are afraid to be part of this project and the vendors are refusing to work. And so then she escalated to her uh, new boss and the new boss told her, can can you tell me what's going on? You know, and he said, why are people leaving your department? Why are other people not showing up in meetings? This is a great project. Why are, why don't they want to be involved? Why are the vendors refusing? It's money for them. How come they're refusing? And, and, and then he asked her that question. It's a great boss. He asked her the question, do you want to win or do you want to succeed? Because all you have been doing is winning. The win is about that negotiation, that short-term competition. But what is success? Can you, how do you define success then? Success is where you take everybody on the journey to reach the goal, where you are, you know, you are kind of collaborating with people. You're trying to show people, hey, there is a common goal. Make people come to a common understanding of what the goal is and gain a consensus on the goal and see what they can contribute. Show them what the role is and what their responsibility is and what your role and responsibility is. Your role and responsibility is not to be the big boss. Your role and responsibility is to involve everyone, to make uh, everybody really enjoy working with you. You know, when people enjoy and they are passionate about the goal, you achieve a lot more and it's longer term. When you are kind of muscling your way and you're forcing people, yeah, you may accomplish the goal, but it's not going to last. So you're talking about finding shared purpose uh, and then aligning with people up, down, sideways, diagonal, uh, and so that everyone's moving in the same direction, uh, that you have ground rules, that you uh, know what your priorities are, that you're agreeing on an ongoing basis on next steps. Yes. And, and, you know, asking them, hey, do you have time for this project? Where is this in the priority? How can I help you shift the priority? What can I do for you? so that you can give some time for this project. Um, and when you talk about avoiding potholes, um, wh wh what do you mean by that? Uh, so I assume it's on the journey. If you're taking people with you on the journey, um, when you say avoiding potholes, t tell us what you mean by that. What are the most common potholes people fall into? I think that, the you know, where I experienced the biggest potholes was one, was moving from corporate to entrepreneur. So when I was a, in corporate, I had all these resources and I commanded them. So I promised uh, people because I knew there would be a, an army supporting me to deliver these. When I became an entrepreneur, 
I, I started promising people. I said, oh, I can, no problem. I can do 10 training sessions within a month. And then I realized, oh my God. And I lost the client because I couldn't keep up. So that's one of the potholes without, you know, you not realizing what your limitations are and what your capabilities are. That is the biggest pothole in, you know, when you're working in corporate America, anywhere in business. I think that's so powerful because, you know, people who have a great attitude, they have expertise, they have a good work ethic, they want to add value. Uh, it, it's so hard not to say yes. But if you say yes, yes, yes to everything, you end up overpromising. Yes. And, and that is exactly because what I feel is in, in every role, there is a balance between power and responsibility. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm power hungry. And I've got these 10 training sessions and without taking responsibility. And, and that balance has to be maintained. So to me, overpromising one of the big uh, potholes. And the other pothole is communication. People don't understand. Like I, I, I always tell people, it's so funny when I get emails and they say, oh, Mala, we have communicated to that person that the, this is the deadline uh, for the project. And, and I always shoot back and saying, there is no communication and two two phrases, uh, two words that cannot come in the same sentence. You don't communicate to, you communicate with. With, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people don't understand that because, and you know, and, and, and this person wrote the ball is in her court. And I said, no, the ball is hanging in midair until you come to a common understanding, until you affirm that that person understood what it is that you're asking. You're sending a one-way email and you know what happens to one-way communication, saying, hey, this is, we, we, I need this by this uh, thing. And the other person has not affirmed it or even asked you what it is and what, you know, what needs to get done. And you're assuming it's going to get done. No, it's not. You know, and this is something that I use in all my classes, Bruce, the uh, traffic signal. I commun you know, I compare traffic signal to the levels of communication. The, the red light is tell. When you tell somebody, they, you know, a red light means you stop. They, they can only react to it. If you tell somebody, oh, your uh, customer satisfaction has dropped to uh, 70% from 80, then people can only react. And the middle is the amb the yellow is the uh, message. You know, you, you're giving them a message. You convey, tell, convey a message saying the customer satisfaction has dropped because we are not, uh, our telephone system is lousy because people are saying they're well putting on, put a hold for about, you know, five minutes. And that is conveyed. The communication is when you kind of convey the message and the other person makes sure that the other person understands it and you have a dialogue and then you come to an understanding of what the real message is and then move forward. Like, for instance, in a traffic signal, you don't move. I don't move forward when I see the green signal. I make sure that nobody else is violating the traffic rules. You know, if the person on the left decides, OK, I'm going to rush through and get past and crosses and makes a left and you're going forward because the green light is there. 
that's a collision. And that's what happens in 95% of so-called communications. there There is no shared understanding. So in negotiation, before they start negotiating, people don't spend the time to understand the problem and come to a common shared understanding of the problem. Before they come to a problem, they start coming up with options and all these negotiation techniques. And the way I realized this, I, I was uh, I taught uh, client satisfaction, you know, client relationship and presentation techniques, and also soft negotiations to employees and cognizant. And what I felt was, as soon as a client adds requirements. You know, here's a project and, uh, you know, it's going to be delivered on June 15th. And on June 1st, the client adds more requirements. And then they come in and then these people are reacting. They get mad. They say no. They avoid calls. So they are all reactions, emotional way of, uh, you know, saying either I can do it or I won't do it. And what happened was I taught them, hey, stop. You didn't come to a common understanding of what the problem is. The problem is not that the client is making too many demands. The problem is that you're not understanding what the demand is and why the demand is happening and what can you do to uh, understand what the problem is. So generally, you know, the rule of thumb is that if you understand what the problem is, the solution is not for all. So what I what I hear you saying is that uh, what would happen is these these um, clients would come with more and more demands, which of course uh, would be referred to by the folks on the other side as scope creep. But the reason that happens is probably because the requests, the asks, uh, the scope was not fully fleshed out in the first place before they agreed that um, that the ask was too vague. And the yes was was too quick, uh, and there was not enough dialogue. Right, um, uh, there was not enough dialogue and finding a common understanding um, of the goal uh, that would dictate the success um, uh, at the outset. And that that's what you call rule one, right? The goal uh, goal dictates success. The goal dictates success, and um, you know, and and the other thing that here is d- d- respond, don't react. Most of the time we react. For, for instance, um, I, I give this example of a website that this uh, entrepreneur wanted design. She's a speaker and uh, trainer and everything. And all the websites that were designed were focused on all the trainings and the workshops and everything. And it was, it was not at all satisfactory. So she went to the final designer and the designer comes up with uh, some designs and she's not happy. She said, oh, this is as bad as the thing. And she wanted to add more pages. She wanted to add all the videos and everything. And then she goes to someone, one of the persons in the website company was smart. He said, Mala, let's sit back and see why you are not happy with, with all the website designs. You've had these website designs for five years, you've had about five website builders, you've spent thousands of dollars. What is it that you're not happy about? And he said, can I attend one of your speaking engagements? 
can I attend one of your training? And he attended her training, her speaking uh, thing. And then uh, he said, okay, what is lacking in your website is not focusing on where your power is. You're a powerful speaker. So we need to focus on that. The moment we focus on that, then you don't need all these additional pages and everything. He said, I could do a one single page design that would get you more traffic than any other 10, 25 pages that I can build for you. And that solved the problem. So instead, if they had, they reacted initially saying, okay, if you want the 10 pages, then we are going to charge you $10,000. If you want 10 more videos, we for every video that we upload, it's $150. So that's the reaction. Whereas this person was gave a response because it was, you know, his intelligence. He used his intelligence. If you want to gain visibility, you don't do that by adding pages in your website or videos that nobody's going to see. Show why people need to hire you or why people need to listen to you. And, but this is an example of where there was not alignment about uh, the need, uh, alignment about what you were really asking for, what you were really requesting. Um, and, and so there was, not a, there was not enough communication up front. I often find uh, uh, one of the things we find when we look at uh, communication in the workplace is that uh, there's not enough work done up front. People don't slow down enough at the outset to make sure that they're aligned before they move forward. You know, you can drive a hundred miles an hour. If you're going in the wrong direction, you're not getting anything done. Exactly. And, and mo most of my classes in negotiation and presentations focused on coming to an understanding of the message. What is it that you're going to uh, think? So I spent two hours on that and only maybe 10 minutes on how to deliver. Uh, because as as long as you got the message and you're confident about it, then you can walk in and present anywhere. You don't need tips on how to stand or how to smile. All that is just, I would say, frills. Now, when you say uh, ask, ask what, not who, uh, what do you mean by that? You know, here, here uh, uh, because when a problem happens, what is the first thing you people tend to ask? Who created the problem? Who, who is to be blamed? I don't want to be blamed, so how can I find a person that I can blame? And that leads to, that leads to finger pointing, right? Finger pointing. One finger is pointed at the person and four fingers are pointed at you. So, you know, it's a blame game. And when you start the blame game, the problem cannot be resolved. Blame, whether you blame yourself or blame somebody else, whether you're feeling guilty or whether you're accusing someone else, then the problem never gets resolved. The problem only gets resolved when somebody takes responsibility. And what does responsibility mean? It means to trying to understand what the problem is and how can we get that resolved? Because one of the, uh, when I was working for one of the companies, we sent the wrong mailing and it went to customers and told them that their product is being withdrawn. And that was like a major, major catastrophe. It went up to the CEO and everybody was trying to cover uh, under their you know, desks and saying who's to blame, who's to blame. 
And then there was one, uh, it was a senior level person who came to the meeting, you know, brought everybody together, the product manager, the communications people, the market research people, everybody, the operations folks. And he said, you know, I want to start this meeting uh, by congratulating all of you for making the, uh, you know, sending the mailing on time. You know, it's amazing. I'm so impressed that you guys got it. And he said, everything looked really nice. It's just that we sent it to the wrong people. He didn't use the word you. He said, we sent it to the wrong people. And those people just think, put yourself in their shoes. If somebody told you your health insurance is going to be dropped tomorrow, you would panic. So put yourself in the client's shoes and let us see how we can address this problem. And, you know, because marketing said, we won't pay the money to redo the thing. Operations said, we won't pay. So he said, let us all come together and see how this can be done. And he expressed his gratitude. And he said, I'm going to give you an hour's time. You're all very bright, intelligent people. And he took the most contentious person in the meeting and said, I'm going to leave you responsible for facilitating this discussion. In an hour, come with a resolution. That was it. Everybody was so happy because they said, okay, he's grateful. We did do a good job. See, when you blame, all the work that you did goes to waste. You don't want to do that. You want to acknowledge the work that was done, but focus on the problem and fix it. And that was, you know, that was the biggest lesson I learned. You know, when something goes wrong, find what is good in it and acknowledge and be grateful and then go about finding out what went wrong rather than who did it. Well, sometimes, you know, people are so energized by outrage and grievance. And yet uh, that just makes relationships worse and outcomes worse. And when you focus on shared purpose and uh, how to get better together, um, then you get things done and you get things done a whole lot better. And 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 it creates uh, not just a, a diminution in relationship friction, it creates uh, uh, better relationships. It creates relationships of mutual trust and confidence. Exactly. It creates a harmony, you know, because when harmony is not there, then the problem cannot be uh, resolved. When people are calm and there is harmony, then things can be resolved uh, better. So you say, you say dare to dream. What, what do you mean by dare to dream? A lot of times uh, people go in with the fear, you know, oh, what is going to happen? And oh, if I go into this client and the client is angry, and this is what I faced when I was teaching all the employees incognizant, oh my God, you know, how can I take this project? What is going to happen? I'm going to lose the client. So all these kind of fears inhibit your thinking. You know, when you are fearful, you cannot be innovative because you are so focused on what is going to happen to me. Instead, you should have the courage to look outward to see what is happening to them and how can we just like the way this senior vice president said, look at the client. How can you help the client? That immediately made us all innovative. So the dare to dream is basically motivating people to think beyond 
their fears and look for something good. You know, one example I give, it's a basic example. You know, uh, this person is afraid of sitting in the middle seat uh, in a flight. And she had to make a long, you know, uh, flight to an international from the United States. And she was so afraid. She said, oh, my God, if they give me a middle seat, I'll have to cancel the appointment. And I don't care if I lose the client. You know, I'm probably going to lose. So it was kind of a negative thinking. And then, you know, I told her, why don't you think about that you're going to meet the client? You're going to have a great time and that the airline is going to give you the best seat in the flight. Go with that hope. Because when she went with the fears, the agent basically said, ma'am, we can't make any uh, changes for you. You can only book the uh, seat uh, 24 hours before. We cannot. When she went with this hope, this dream, and I said, you know, before you go talk to anybody, take a nice long walk, listen to some inspirational speeches, uh, you know, do meditation, whatever it is that will balance your mind. And she called and the agent said, hey, you do have a lot of miles. You do travel. So we can put you in the business class. And would you like that? Can you, is it okay to use your mileage? And she said, use my mileage. Oh my God, I'm willing to give you money too. You know, and she got a business class seat and she went. So she dared to dream and she got it. It's a very simple example, but that's what we do to ourselves. And that's what we do when we work with clients. It's like, oh my God, this client is going to be so unhappy. Or when we go to ask for a promotion to a boss, you're going to say, oh, what if I ask and the person is afraid and is going to fire me? So if you go with all those inhibitions and fears, instead, if you go there and say, oh, I can see myself working as a manager in this department, I'll do so well. You know, start dreaming about the job, put yourself in that position. Then, you know, so that's what I mean when I say dare to dream. Don't go there with problems. And, and, and it's, it sounds a lot like positive visualization, but it's not magic. It's really that attitude matters. Uh, what you imagine matters. What you see ahead of you matters. What you try to visualize and achieve uh, has an effect on where you end up. And um, so it's in, in some ways, that's where uh, uh, maybe Eastern and Western uh, uh, thinking meet up is that, you know, it's like the power of positive thinking. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale um, meets up with, uh, with some of the, the great wisdom uh, from, from Eastern philosophy. Um, so um, as we're uh, nearing the end of our time, what, what's your uh, elevator pitch for if you were to tell somebody um, uh, you know, Hey, here's my best advice for you. Like if you were to give, if you're in an elevator and somebody needs, uh, some career advice from the bottom floor to the top floor, what's, what's your best career advice for somebody to take away? The, the best advice I can give is it's all about your mindset. It's not about the external. You can control your mind. You cannot control anybody else's. So you go and attend all these negotiation techniques and how to outwit the other person. It's all focused on the external. Whereas what is important is the internal, how to gain that silence, 
how to focus on yourself and build the courage. You know, when people come to me and say, uh, oh, how am I going to, you know, I've lost my job. What do I do? I, t I tell them, sit down and write down what your accomplishments have been for the past five years. Write down the uh, 10 accomplishments. And as soon as they write the fifth accomplishment, they're bouncing back. So the confidence, the accomplishments, the achievements, your behavior, your responses, your dreams, and your intentions all come from within you. And so go within and look for that, your mindset. Go within and control your mindset. That is great career advice from Mala Subramaniam. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you. In our next episode, to celebrate our 50th episode, I interview the indispensable team at Rainmaker Thinking, Cheryl Wolanski, Liz Richards, and Kim Math. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.